Hello, everybody. Welcome to You Are Good. I'm so glad you're here. You Are Good, of course, is a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. We'll be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to let you know that today we are talking about the movie To Die For, and we're talking about that movie with our great friend, Laura Lippman, who we adore, we often say is a patron saint of this podcast. First, you should know that To Die For is a 1995 film directed by Gus Van Sant and written by the uh, just illustrious Buck Henry, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Joyce Maynard, which itself was inspired by the story of Pamela Smart. We talk about all this in the episode, I just wanted to give you a heads up. In the movie, we have Nicole Kidman, Joaquin Phoenix, Matt Dillon, Alina Douglas, Wayne Knight, Kerwood Smith, Dan Hydea, and more. With Laura, we talk a lot about all of these individual characters, particularly Joyce Maynard. Laura is a journalist and author of over 20 detective fiction novels, believe it or not. So I saw Laura when I was in Baltimore months back when things felt like they may have been getting better. I had the opportunity to see Laura. It was great. And I just recalled in this conversation talking with Laura and just her not knowing how many books she'd written. (laughs) That's how prolific an author Laura is. Her latest is Dream Girl, a novel which came out last year. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible by you. Thanks so much for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Folks who support us there get bonus episodes. We released an episode recently and we have two episodes a month, two bonus episodes a month that come out with the Patreon membership. And we recently released an episode about, and just like that, the Sex in the City kind of rebootish series. And it's a conversation between Sarah and me just trying to figure this thing out. Sarah's a longtime fan of the show. I don't have a background with the show. And just from that release, we got 70 new patrons and we are grateful. And I had no idea that that was what was going to bring people out. Us talking about the Sex and the City reboot. We talk about all sorts of things. The next episode, we're going to talk about the Titanic dead. We jump all around with regard to the things that we focus on in those episodes. We've talked about all sorts of things. We'd love it if you join us there. If you're not if you're not uh, there already, you get even more of us. You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here. United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We have a playlist that accompanies this episode. We release playlists that accompany all of our episodes. You can check that out in the show notes. And finally, for a limited time, for a very limited time, you can order one of our Liz Climo designed You Are Good shirts. Uh, The link is in the show notes. They're only available to order for another week. Well, that's it from me for this. You know what? You are good, my friends. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram at you are good pod and uh, again we're at patreon patreon.com slash you are good all right let's talk with laura about to die for hi my name is suzanne moretto oh wait i'm sorry (laughs) suzanne moretto is my married name my own name is suzanne stone that's my professional name suzanne stone It's not like I have any negative feelings about the name Moretto. 
Moretto is the name, after all, of my husband, who I loved very, very much. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello. I'm so happy that we're doing this movie, and I'm excited to hear about why you wanted to do this now. Oh, my God. And I want to set up you introducing our wonderful guest by saying that we have Billy Zane's swimming instructor here. We have Billy Zane's swimming instructor here. We are joined by Laura Lippman, who I think is also the guest that we talk about most when she's not here. That's true. We're always like, Laura said the most amusing thing the other day. I feel like Laura's the patron saint of this podcast. Yeah. I feel like Laura comes up all the time. I'll take it. Because she loves movies and she loves feelings. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Laura, hi. Hi. How's everybody doing? New Year swamped. <laughs> I have not yet created any major regrets in 2022. So that's pretty cool. Well, at 24 hours in, I got a booster shot yesterday. Yay. Everybody get boosted if you can. Get into your booster seat from your big boy head to your big boy feet. It's from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Um, Okay, so Sarah, what are we covering? And then tell us about your relationship and then we'll ask Laura a bit about the same. We are talking about Gus Van Sant's masterpiece, Yes, I Said It, To Die For, which is one of my favorite movies ever. We're having a really great run of movies that I love more than any other because this movie, I've probably seen it like 25 times. I often will watch like a little bit of it where other people watch like new TV shows. I'm like, I'm going to watch the first half hour of Casino and like think about how Casino Mm. was assembled. (laughs) And this is another movie I do that with because the craftsmanship I think is like so well done and also so fun to deconstruct. To Die For is based on Joyce Maynard's novel To Die For, which in turn is based on the Pam Smart case, which was a gigantic in the media murder case that happened in New Hampshire when Joyce Maynard was living in New Hampshire and also was, I believe, the first trial to be broadcast in its entirety, not in a national market, but locally. And that was like immediately pre O.J. Simpson And kind of this acid test for what the public was interested in, because what people found while that trial was airing was that it was knocking soap operas out of the box, Mm. which nobody expected. And so that kind of demonstrated that Americans are willing to watch a lot of hours of trial. And the trial was of a woman who had allegedly hired slash sexually bewitched a teenage boy who I think was 15 at the time into murdering her husband. And she told him and later said that it was because he was abusive. The dominant viewpoint at the time, because this is kind of the way that we see women in these kinds of stories, at least in the 20th century, maybe a little less now, but I would argue not that much less, that she had just killed him because he got in the way of her ambitions or just because she got tired of him. And so to die for It's pretty undisguised how closely it's based on the bones of the story. But what it does that makes me watch it again and again is that it's pathologizing the murderer figure at the center who's played by Nicole Kidman, Suzanne Stone. But it's also talking about the entire media landscape of like a story happens, the 
entire countries or possibly the world's news media descends on a small town and then like feasts on a carcass until there's nothing left but bleached bones and then they go on to the next story and that's what the 90s were about they're like the near dark vampires yes. they like show up in their in their rv they suck the town dry and then go somewhere else <laughs> yes they're like you're as soft as a preacher's belly <laughs> And then they bite you in the neck. And so, yeah, it's the story of Suzanne Stone, played by Nicole Kidman, marrying Matt Dillon's character, Larry, Larry Moretto, who is like a lovely. This movie takes place in New Hampshire, but I he just feels like a Connecticut dirtbag to me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> As a person who lived their life a very close to many, many northern New England dirtbags, this guy's a Connecticut dirtbag. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah. And also like a lovely guy. And I think she marries him because he initially seems like someone who's going to unconditionally support her goals of becoming a newscaster on the scale of James Polly and who doesn't notice when she has some kind of a sexual encounter with George Siegel during their honeymoon. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets in her way and is like, you know, Suze, this dream of yours probably isn't going to happen. You should just help me run my dad's restaurant. We see her just kind of dissociate and be like, well, Larry has to go. And so she gets her teen paramour played by Joaquin Phoenix to kill him. And then we watch the media descend on everybody. And this case literally did inspire. If it wasn't a Lifetime movie at the time, it was on Lifetime a lot when I was growing up starring Helen Hunt. So like this is the stuff of Lifetime movies. So the plot doesn't convey how fun this is to watch because this kind of territory is like so overdone kind of in this decade of media. But yeah, I would just I would love to talk maybe about what makes this movie so pleasurable and so smart, at least in my opinion. I haven't seen this movie, which felt shocking while watching it. But like, I didn't realize how much it owed to how much Drop Dead Gorgeous owes to this movie. Oh, I haven't seen Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Drop Dead Gorgeous is like family friendly. This. <laughs> Laura, what's your relationship with this film? So I read the book probably when it first came out. I've long been a fan of Joyce's, who was famous for publishing a memoir when she was 18 or 19 called Looking Back. Mm -hmm. which is something that if you were just a few years younger than she was, Joyce cast this really big shadow. Is she like the Tavi Gevinson of her generation where just when you're about her age, you're like, how the fuck? Yeah. I was just playing The Sims. <laughs> I mean, I have this very vivid memory of ordering the paperback version of her memoir when I'm like 14 or 15. So I think Joyce is four or five years older than I am. And it's just like, oh my God, there's a 19-year-old who wrote a book. I'm never going to catch up. And, you know, Joyce went on to have this fascinating life. She's written a memoir about the fact that she lived with J.D. Salinger. Hmm. She's written other novels and she's incredibly prolific. She's also even written her own true crime book about a murder in Detroit. So I read the novel when it came out. I must have seen it not in the theater the first time. Hmm. Which just seems strange to me because it came out in 95 when in 95 hmm. I saw almost everything in the theater for the first <laughs> time. But I remember catching up to it and feeling like it's just such a smart movie. Mm -hmm. Joyce gets a lot of credit because she creates kind of the documentary sense. The book is written as a series of interviews. Mm -hmm. You just see the different people talking about this happened, this happened, and you go among the various characters. 
Buck Henry took that and ran with it in such a smart way. I mean, there's so many amazing talents that collide within this movie mm-hmm. and rewatching it to talk about it today. And this sounds like a criticism, but I actually think it's what makes the movie work so well is I feel like most of the actors are not in, in the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nicole Kidman and Buck Henry clearly understand they're in a satiric movie, mm-hmm. that they're in something that's funny and dark. Casey Affleck is just doing like early Casey Affleck. Like, <laughs> I'm the bad guy in this, but one day I'll be the hero in Gone Baby Gone. And, <laughs> and, and Matt Dillon seems different and Ileana Douglas. And like everybody seems to sort of have their own private space within the movie. And I'm just going to jump straight to this. Don't you wish that David Cronenberg had acted in more movies every time you watched oh, To Die yeah. For? Yes. I was like, why have I not seen more acting work from David Cronenberg? He's so perfect. And this movie has such a hard tone to nail. Mm. And Gus Van Zandt nailed it. Like things that happen in this movie when you're watching it and you're like, that's kind of implausible. That's kind of implausible. That's kind of implausible. But it works. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about it yet, but I really don't think that form of body disposal is that practical. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty. It's very dramatic. It's very vivid. Mm-hmm. It provides a wonderful jumping off point for the credits, but... Well, don't you get tired of skating over the Pepsi logo? I mean, I know I would. <laughs> <laughs> I think a professional would have done something a little more professional. <laughs> Maybe David Cronenberg's character, like he's a hitman by day, but he really wants to do murder art and he's going to be on Hannibal someday. His character reminds me of a Twin Peaks character in this. And totally. like just finding her in the water obviously is super Twin Peaksy. But yes. we just covered mm-hmm. Titanic and this reminds of the never ending debate about whether or not Jack could fit on the door. Mm-hmm. I read a handful of articles that covered like the, like this. This debate went on through Brad Pitt mentioning it in his award acceptance speech at the Oscars last year. It has never ended. Like we, here we still are and here the people remain. I was sharing this with you earlier, Sarah, is like I just love how smug James Cameron is about it, where he's like, obviously it was an artistic choice. And I like, I love that so much. Yes. <laughs> That reminds me of the kids in the hall sketch we watched when you and Carolyn were in Portland, where it's like this really drunk, belligerent guy insisting on flying a plane when he's drunk. And then the punchline is that he puts and he's like, do you know who I am? And he puts on glasses and he goes, I'm Buddy fucking Holly. I can't believe I didn't see this movie this whole time. Gus Van Sant's one of my favorite directors. I think I'd forgotten that he Mm -hmm. had directed because like his his career up to this moment was a very different career. Yes. And then he made this and he made good. We watched Goodwill Hunting totally coincidentally last night because Carolyn read the screenplay yesterday. Hmm. But like how lucky were they? That Casey was in to die for. Right. And essentially delivered the relationship with Gus Van Sant. At the end of the movie, when Ben finally shows up to Matt's house and he's not there, there's a long Ben Affleck face acting scene of like 20 seconds of him processing that that Matt's not at the door and it's the most distilled Affleck I've ever seen in my life. And you're like, how the <laughs> fuck did you write this movie? 
know how much polish was put on it by other people, but like at the end of the day, it's a story about a cocky young guy who's as cocky as he deserves to be. I mean, it's very similar to Garden State by Zach Braff. I feel like people are going to come at me with little forks for comparing these two movies. Like, yes, Goodwill Hunting is better. It's certainly aged much better. But like, they're both stories about being like a special guy seeking his fortune. And then like the sophistication is put on by the director a lot of the time, I think. Yes. And this is the exact opposite experience where this is a Buck Henry script. Yeah. You're doing all right. If you've got a Buck Henry script, he co-invented Get Smart with Mel Brooks. He wrote The Graduate. <laughs> You're doing okay. He's Buck fucking Henry. He's Buck fucking Henry. <laughs> he's fuck fucking Henry. Yeah. And like, I love Buck Henry. I know he's no longer with us, but I'm just going to speak of everyone in the present tense. Buck Henry's hot. Can we agree? He's a hottie. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. Wait, what's the Barbara Streisand movie I'm thinking of that I think he wrote with Ryan O'Neill? What's up, Doc? Yes. I think he wrote that. I don't know that for a fact. One thing I do know about Buck Henry, which is not well known, is that in the early 60s, he created a character who would go on talk shows and pretend this was a real person who was upset about nude animals in public. And he was, there was an organization and like he was campaigning that like the horses that ran the Kentucky Derby should have on some sort of underpants because it was so unhealthy for Americans to see all these nude animals running around. I love it. I love it so much. He also wrote Day of the Dolphin. Oh, right. Which oh is a God. movie about a dolphin that tries to assassinate the president of the United States. And that's like a Mike Nichols film. Yes. And it has one of the great taglines on the poster, which is, is something like he inadvertently trained a dolphin to assassinate the president of the United States. And then it's just Curie Scott's face. It's not a comedy. No. no. <laughs> So what do you love about this movie? Nicole Kidman is amazing. She's 27 or 28 years old at the time. So she's actually a little bit older than Pam Smart. And I feel like I should just like jump in here and say, people, you should really go watch Captivated, the documentary mm -hmm. about Pamela Smart, because there's a lot of... Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be understood. And there's some shock of shocks. Maybe she was overly vilified during this. That couldn't possibly have happened. It was the 1990s. <laughs> you were so good to women in the 90s. So I think Nicole Kidman's performance is is perfect. And it's, it's a hard performance because she's not likable. Mm -hmm. She's vain and she's silly and she's so focused on fame. And she pulls off some incredible moments. I was talking earlier about how there are things that happen in this movie that you're just like, well, that's not factual. And one of them was, I think, even in 1992 or 93, local stations no longer ended the broadcast day with the playing of the Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like something that just hasn't happened for a really long time. It's very anachronistic. And there's this scene in To Die For when that is on the TV and Nicole Kidman as the recently widowed beautiful young woman has just walked into the room where her parents and her in-laws sit and she sees all the lights out on the lawn and she's drawn to them. Mm. That scene could have gone wrong mm -hmm. a thousand ways. It's like really hard for her to, to pull off. I mean, the, that speech outside the courtroom where she's like, you know, 
is it truth, justice, the American way and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are not easy things to do. She's really balanced on a knife's edge for much of this movie where she's comic. She's keeping it in a satiric key, but she's human. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it. I love her performance as well. And I think my summary of how that works is that I think she's being completely sincere about it. And there's no ironic distance between her and the character at all. And I think she just, to me, communicates somebody who is like operating at her greatest capacity. And it's this. And you can see that so clearly, like the scene where she goes in to do her job interview with Wayne Knight at WWE. And we just see her like marching in there with like this expression on her face, like she's about to like run into no man's land or something. The absolute seriousness with which she takes everything. I mean, like, obviously, she's a manipulative, at least hirer of a hired killer, you know, you could use the term murderer, and is focused only on herself and etc. and so forth. But like, I love watching this character. I love experiencing this character. What stands out to you having just watched this for the first time? I wasn't expecting the McLuhan-esque commentary on television and fame. Right. I love that stuff. I loved it so much. I mean, this movie is about TikTok. This movie is about influencers in one way or another. Like the line between being like, it's silly to care about being on TV. Mm -hmm. And also like in this country, that's where power is. Mm -hmm. In this country, it's incredibly important and theoretically accessible way to gain power if you don't feel like you have power and to gain people taking you seriously is to be on screens or to be in the media in some way and like I don't know like her quest could have been like silly and sad but like it's one that I kind of understand I understand that she's like I want to do this thing and I want to be taken seriously and it turns out like I'm not actually in this character at least very well equipped to do like I'm not as skilled as I think that I am so I thought that that was really interesting And I thought that this is the best I've ever seen Nicole Kidman. Mm. This is the funniest I've ever seen Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. And then as far as like, God damn, like 90s casting, like this is the best 90s cast I've ever seen in my life. Like Dana Dea, I had no idea. What a surprise. What a surprise to open to him. The cameos like Laura was talking about earlier with David Cronenberg. I mean, like it was Mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily funny. Like a scene for scene. It's one of it's also one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And I was very surprised by that. Also, let me add, imagine casting as people who are married to each other. Holland Taylor and Kurtwood Smith. (laughs) It's brilliant. That's like you invented a new cocktail. I love the framing of it happening on essentially Oprah. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And even just like the little touches where Kurtwood Smith's character is essentially saying that he was warning his daughter from getting involved with Matt Dillon's character because of potential mafia connections. Mm -hmm. And then he says to Dan Hedaya, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And just the interplay that they have where uh, Hedaya's response is like, no, I understand. I understand. Like everything is so well considered. And like Laura said, there are a number of occasions where it could have just been bad and somehow they hit every opportunity. It should have won awards for Nicole Kidman's costumes alone. Yes. (laughs) And again, you're sort of like, oh, if I were actually trying to put this through my real life filter, could this woman actually afford all these outfits? Don't care. I don't care. I like the fact that she wears them all. You know, I like the scene in the dressing room where 
Lydia, one of the three kids who mm-hmm. is involved in the murder for hire plot. Oh, Lydia's she, so good. She's so good. She procures the gun. And there's that scene where she just tries on underwear in front I of know. her. And there's like this yeah. montage of panties <laughs> falling to the floor. And there's a point of me that's like, I don't think you get to put the panties on when you're at Victoria's Secret, but who cares? (laughs) But the style of the world is like expressing what these characters are feeling. I think like that's one thing I love about how fashion can be used in media. And I've been rewatching Sex in the City because, of course, we have a reboot now and Alex and I just did a bonus episode about it and all of our shock and awe. And those are unrealistic outfits for people to be putting together, but like they're all communicating how they're feeling in the moment. And I feel like one of the things Suzanne's wardrobe conveys is that she feels that she's like kind of a 60s throwback. Like, I love that she's pissed when her husband's sister, who she thinks should certainly be on TV way after she's on TV, is going to maybe be on TV in this like ice capades thing she's doing. And especially that she gets to be the Peggy Lipton role in the salute to 60s spy shows. (laughs) It's it's an amazing wardrobe. It's just, you know, I kind of want to write down every single outfit that appears. But, you know, we haven't talked about Joaquin Phoenix, which is, again, this is like a different performance. Mm -hmm. He's super earnest. Mm -hmm. It's so serious. It's heartbreaking when he talks, when he gives a little speech about feeling like he was in a zombie movie Yes. and he came out of the grave and he just wanted to, to eat brains and he acts that out. It's, yeah. it's so interesting that a movie this satiric, it makes room for a performance that is that earnest and sincere. It's perfect. I mean, the character in the movie doesn't really understand what's happening to him. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, you know, the actor is like, I don't know what movie I'm in. I'm just being me. And I'm, Mm -hmm. this is just how I feel. And I have no idea what the stakes are. That's one of the things that I love about my own private Idaho. The more you, the more you talk about that is this idea that you have all these characters where like, it's at once farce and like heavy on style but like you still get these like absolutely gut-wrenching performances mm-hmm. by like boys and like that you get that with Joaquin Phoenix here where it's like I went to school with a bunch of people like Joaquin Phoenix's character like down to style in a long enough conversation you could always access this like really innocent sweetness even though they were like fucking zombie movie fan metalheads which I kind of was too. Right. <laughs> so I love I love what we get from him. What's interesting to me is how quickly it came out after the Pamela Smart trial. Yeah, Yeah. that's wild. I mean, there's like less than four years. So it's like the book must have been out really fast. Mm -hmm. Joyce writes amazingly fast. I believe she has said she wrote the book in two weeks. Damn. That's crazy. And But to think that this movie was out by 1995 Mm -hmm. with a book in between and a script this good, Mm -hmm. Buck Henry allowed her to come to Hollywood and talk to him Mm. about the script and the book, which is really unusual. Mm. That's sort of a testament to Joyce's personality. I mean, I don't think it's telling tales of the school because these are all things Joyce has written about. Joyce was someone who very much wanted to become famous Mm. and, you know, was really driven by the idea that she needed to be successful she needed to get up every day and write. And at the end of the day, she needed to be able to look back and think that she had accomplished something during the day, which is how you end up on the cover of the New York Times magazine when you're 18 years old with the lead story about what your generation is like. And 
her, she appears in this. I, do y'all know that? She's in the movie. I knew that. Yeah. It's a very small part, but she does have a line. She's the defense attorney and she lobbied to be in it. She writes about this in her memoir and they gave her like fancy earrings to wear. And, you know, she went to the Toronto Film Festival when it debuted and it helped her buy a house in California. That was how she ended up moving to Hmm. the Bay Area because she had this big check from selling the book. That's how she ended up leaving New Hampshire. Hmm. She was definitely someone who, who wanted to act, who was interested in fame you know, was obsessed with models when she was a teenager. And, you know, then she ended up in a relationship with the most reclusive writer Mm. of the 20th century. I I mean, I think Salinger gets that title. It's like now when you have a mixed marriage with one person who's on Twitter and one person who's not on Twitter, (laughs) like a fish can love a bird, but where would they live? I was just curious with regard to Maynard, do you think that because she is a person who has identified that she's like, I I was doing the work, obviously, and I wanted to get well known that that's why this character she was able to in her writing, at least on the book end, she was able to make this character have some sympathetic angle. I think she's actually more sympathetic in the movie than in the book. Like, I haven't read the book. Yeah, I haven't read the book since grad school, but I think. Nicole Kidman kind of injects some like patheticness into her that I don't remember being there in the book. Mm. Yeah. In the book, everything's a little flatter because it's just monologues and you're not even seeing people interacting. You're just hearing people tell their various stories. I mean, I think one of the things that I just like to highlight is that Joyce had the really good instinct to take only one element out of the real life Pamela Smart story, which is a young woman convinced three young people to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. she's not a school teacher anymore, although the relationship is begins in a school project. Actually, the real Pamela Smart is not, not a school teacher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she actually wasn't a teacher in real life. I always like to, har- right. Yeah. I always like to harp on this because people love the like hot for teacher thing. They just start hearing Def Leppard. Yeah. It's interesting to me that someone can take this kernel of an idea. It's not obvious to go from the real life Pamela's smart story to this. This is so much more interesting with all praise to Helen Hunt, whom I adore. This is so much more interesting than a ripped from the headlines version. Helen Hunt did her best with the script they gave her, I'm sure. <laughs> she's, you know, one of the most wonderful actresses. And I think she's also directs now. But yeah, there's a really big gulf between the TV movie version of this and To Die For. Yeah. And I guess I'm interested in the question of what elevates this. This is a word, right? Elevated and food where it's like, yeah, we took like macaroni and cheese, but then we like, I don't even, I don't remember how restaurants work, but we did something to it. And (laughs) so it is, and I think it's the right word to use in this case, but for when it happens in food, it's usually disappointing. Usually it's like, just give me fucking mac and cheese. Something that doesn't get talked about quite enough, but it's, we've already talked about costumes. The production design of this movie is fantastic. It's a fantastic looking movie. It's perfectly shot for what it is. It maintains tone throughout Mm -hmm. just as Nicole Kidman as an actress keeps it in that narrow pocket of this is funny, but I'm also a real human being. It manages to sort of like, this is funny, but it's also a tragedy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's the detail. And I got very mad a couple of weeks ago by happenstance. 
I listened to another podcast that will not be named talking about this movie. And they said that the dog was killed. No. And I was like, how dare you say the dog was killed? She would never ask them to kill Walter. <laughs> no, by her assassin at the end. Oh, oh okay. no, no. That's what they were saying. And I was like, how can you not remember the perfect detail? It is such a perfect detail. And it, to me, it like sums up this movie is that you see the dog in its little outfit sitting in the car and you don't know what's going to happen to the dog, but you know that he may be a hired killer. He's not going to kill Walter. <laughs> you don't kill an innocent. <laughs> That's the tone of the movie. That, that's right. You know what movie this reminds me of, Sarah? And it's not just because Kerwood Smith is in it, but it reminds me of Citizen Ruth. Oh, totally. Yes. Oh. It's as beautifully designed in that strange honoring the location, but also like, yes. to your point, like an elevator, like a slightly heightened version of that location. And a heightened version of a rip from the headline story, because that was also based on a real event. Yes, totally. Like it reminds me a lot of Citizen Ruth. Maybe it's because you have like indie auteur doing something that's like slightly bigger than what they typically mm. do. And it's a quirky and strange place. It kind of feels like without being too much it feels a little like Twin Peaks yeah again slightly removed from reality reality I think they also both have this kind of this is America now yes. <laughs> vibe to them yeah <laughs> I brought up River's Edge because I River's Edge is a movie that was like important at least in my childhood and was important with regard to being like, let's tell a story about teenagers. And that was a rip from the headlines or like a inspired by. It was definitely inspired by a, a piece, a really wonderful piece of long form narrative. I mean, God, I'm dating myself so much now. Yeah, you're taking yourself out for fondue and holding your own hand. <laughs> That's it. Going ice skating. It's very exciting. I was dating a guy at the time who sent me that piece. I believed it appeared in a magazine that was called New West mm -hmm. that isn't around anymore. It was spectacular. I mean, we were like young reporters who were like, oh, wow, maybe one day we could write something this interesting and this fascinating. And it was very much about the fact, not so much that a girl was murdered, but how many kids went to see the body mm. after she was murdered and didn't want to respond to it. Yes. And yet in Stand By Me, it's like wholesome to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how boys come together. <laughs> and then in this 10 years later, it's not a similar story, but it's about the kids. And we have sort of like this, we get to know the kids a bit involved and we there's like a sympathetic telling of the kids. Someone is killed. But again, like the focus and drive of this movie in one way or another is about somebody who's trying to get national attention. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, at the end of the day, still don't know what Gus Van Sant thinks he's saying about our relationship with fame in one way or another, outside of just being like, this is a matter of fact with regard to like how this person interface with the world and ambition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's the mid 90s. Like we have some awareness and consciousness about our relationship with the media in the context of telling a murder story, mm -hmm. as opposed to in the 80s when we're just telling a murder story. And we're like, where the fuck is this going to go next? Her desire for fame is literally the death of her because mm -hmm. how is she lured to her death? But by someone who's like, oh, I'm a, a producer. I need your audition tape. You know, that's when you realize why have we been watching Nicole Kidman talk mm -hmm. to a camera for all this? Like, oh, she's making her audition tape. And you realize sort of how after all this time, how touchingly naive she is oh, God, that she yeah. thinks she needs to produce 
this long autobiographical tape for some producer who's meeting her at an abandoned farmhouse. Also backlighting the shit out of herself. I mean, she has a degree in electronic journalism. I would think she'd know not to do that. (laughs) And that's such an interesting bookend because like her first relationship with actually like getting close to production is when she goes to this conference and talks to this smarmy George Siegel Mm -hmm. television executive who's like a poster person for like an eventual Me Too situation for an eventual Me Too call out. But which in the 90s is just like, well, this is what I have to do. Yeah. To the point where like she ends up, I believe she goes down and George Siegel off camera, she's manipulated into the situation. We see both ends of how gross the quest for fame can be, which is like one, you can get manipulated into giving George Siegel a blowjob or getting murdered by a lake. And then in the middle, in your pursuit, you could accidentally kill your husband. <laughs> Not accidentally, purposely, purposely. She's just trying to have it all. Girl boss. <laughs> but that scene where she is trying to get to know this successful man who can help her, it haunts me because of the other women at the table. The women who sit there and know exactly what's going, because I never got manipulated by George Siegel, but as a young reporter, I was in that position of being the young, naive one, and there were other women who didn't have my back. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a strapping woman of five foot nine. I was able to keep men from getting into my motel room when I was on the road for national stories. But I always think about the women who just sat there and watched in amusement Mm -hmm. as if it was kind of funny that you were the naive one who couldn't quite make sense of what was going on. And again, that scene goes to establishing a kind of humanity in that character. Mm -hmm. Like she's awful. I mean, she's on her honeymoon. (laughs) She's sending her husband off on on a fishing excursion so that she can do whatever she has to do to further her career. But And it's such a great callback when she tears up that letter later after having gone to her interview. Yeah, oh my God, it's so good. That she was going to give to Newman. (laughs) It's so good. My read on that scene is, and it's obviously different because you have a lived experience in this arena and I do not. But my take on that scene with the women laughing is it's, I was as sad for them because I assume that they're like, what are we supposed to do? I assume they've all already done this and they're like, welcome to the club. They all did it. Totally. This is how it's been laid out that I'm allowed to be at this table. It's just horrendous. I think that's part of it. But I also think that among women, part of the destructiveness that I've experienced and observed is that you like cherish that feeling of better than, smarter than, wiser than Mm. somebody who's just walking up the stairs because... A, that's what you have going for you because novelty is exciting to people. Mm. And B, because that's what the culture for a long time has and continues to encourage us to feel about like, I have achieved this wisdom and I know how it works now. And like, it's really hard to not just be like, this is how things have to be. Obviously, like the system is much bigger than me and I figured it out. So that's great. I mean, it's still there. You still have this with people of my generation, boomers have got to learn not to romanticize their own hazing. (laughs) And there's been this tendency to be like, oh, y'all are so fragile. I, I survived horrible stuff and here I am. And what people need to understand is that 
good for you, lucky you, that for whatever reason you were able to withstand and still succeed in abusive cultures. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the abuse is okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, I still see women who have a really hard time letting go of the idea that surviving sexual harassment, just really mean abusive workplace cultures is a badge of honor. Yeah, It's just a fact. You know, you didn't get hit by the bus. Yay for you. Mm-hmm. There's no positive in it. You're not better for that. You're not tougher. You're not smarter. Mm-hmm. You just went through it. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't, you shouldn't wish that on anyone. I don't want anyone to go through the kind of workplace cultures that I experienced, especially in the eighties. Well, I want to, I want to be easy on boomers for a second in a shocking Mm. way and say that I've, I've gone separate ways with partners that I've worked with in business because they had the same expectation that their employees go through what they went Mm -hmm. through. And I think the internalization of abuse happens Mm -hmm. all the time across generations. Although I know that boomers can have a harder time letting go culturally because it's it's obviously there's there's set patterns because they've been used to it for longer (laughs) yes it's weird to say that it's trauma response but it feels like a trauma response that perpetuates the trauma oh i think it is it's totally i mean boomers romanticize their own abuse in hideous workplace cultures because it's the only sad card we have to play. It's like, I know, I know. We got all the economic advantages. We've totally screwed up the country. We fucked everything up. But hey, sometimes people are really mean to me at work. At least we normalize date rape. Yeah. That makes me think of the classic, like when I was your age, I had to walk to school uphill both ways through the snow, etc. When you think about a kid who like has to walk a mile to school every day, Unless it's like way too cold or whatever. And then they get a ride, which I think is humane. Probably that kid is has a better sense of how long things take and is like getting exercise and seeing lambs frisking in the fields or whatever. That can be a positive thing. And I feel like we get really confused, especially when people are talking or romanticizing about the way they grow up between like things that are difficult and like worth doing, like walking or something or learning cursive. I don't think cursive is that important, but I I like knowing how to write in cursive. And then there's just the romanticization of abuse. People get incredibly muddled on the like hard things that are, are, can be good for you or like good to learn and just things that are painful. Yeah. Sarah, because I'm realizing I'm increasingly obsessed with the things that this movie has to say about the media in one way or another, and it just so happens to be you are a person who talks about this era of media, and we have Laura, who was in this era of media. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a bit uh, just about what this movie is saying about fame and about wanting to be a person who is recognized like this whole the quote that she says mm-hmm. where she says you're you're not anybody in America unless you're on TV on TV is where we learn about who we really are because what's the point of doing anything worthwhile if nobody's watching mm-hmm. and if people are watching it makes you a better person Nicole Kidman invented social media it feels like she would at least understand what to do oh yeah if she were alive today she'd be a, a TikTok mom I think way too many movies get remade, but it is fun to think about the way the story of To Die For would play out in 2022. (laughs) You know, by the way, I don't think Sarah knows this about me. I was actually on TV when I was 20 years old. 
I was chosen in a national search to be the co-host of a kids program that was based on Charles Kuralt's segments for um, CBS News, his his traveling pieces. Mm-hmm. I was I can't believe I'm talking about this. I was chosen as the girl half of a show called Going Places, where we drove around in a white van with the United States on the side, and then you put a CBS eye where you'd been that week. And we filmed a pilot, and it was shown on TV. I got a terrible review in the New York Times, and the show was too expensive. Yes, I was called nervous but determined. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's a badge of honor. Yeah. That's how I feel all the time. So I had actually had this weird experience of being on TV at a very young age. And however, briefly, of course, also I've been the captain of my It's Academic team. So I've been on TV a lot for that in the local Baltimore media. But I have a kid. She's 11. She's on TikTok. She's very conscious of her follower counts. And because her dad is legit famous, and I'm always what I call Baltimore famous, (laughs) <laughs> she's really interested in fame hmm. and she has talked to me about it a lot and she doesn't seem to be as interested anymore, but she has said, I want to be famous. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I get to be mm-hmm. famous? And this is like bringing us full circle. When she Googles herself, she finds that one of the few times she's ever been mentioned in public is because she attended Joyce's wedding with me. (laughs) (laughs) And there's actually a photograph somewhere online of Georgia Ray and me at, at Joyce's wedding. And she's like, why is this the only way that I'm known? Why does this, what can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Something I think about a lot is the fact that fame, and this is, you know, something that has occurred to me in the last couple or three years so or after i was at the peak of my obsession with how 90s media seemed to work that like really one of the better economic moves you can make is to achieve some kind of fame and then to parlay it well and then to stop doing that before something bad happens which it will (laughs) and it actually reminds me of the line in showgirls where um, elizabeth berkeley shows up for the first day at her job and the choreographer is like if you're smart, and I was, you'll get a man and a job figured out for after you stop being a dancer and tells a story about how she met her husband because she chipped her tooth on a quaalude and he was her dentist, which leaves me <laughs> wondering how hard qua- quaaludes are. And I feel like that same thing applies to internet celebrity. And I'm sure that it's always been true of other celebrity, but maybe in a less obvious way where it's like you have only so many years before you either become irrelevant or your demographic turns on you. And so you have to be very smart about all of your moves and try and parlay what you have into something that generates income, but without you putting your face out there in such an intense way. Like that's my theory about it currently. This is the story of a person who didn't, whose whole plan was just fame. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens. And we see that happen to a lot of people where they're like, I just want to get sort of mass attention and get it and then don't have any idea what to do with it. And it becomes crushing in one way or another, or it becomes tragic. And that's what this movie is about. Like this is a person who wanted to become famous. This isn't a person who was savvy about fame. Right. And it's like the welcoming of fame at whatever cost. And I think that that was what people kind of believed about women who found themselves at the center of this tornado at the time. So like Lorena Bobbitt, Tanya Harding, 
Pam Smart herself, you know, just people who the the media was fixated on for some finite period of time and then would move on to the next young woman, typically. And I think we had this idea at the time that, like, if you were receiving that much attention, like it had to be good somehow. It had to be making you richer. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that so many cameras were on you had to be improving your situation. And like one of my hopes is that people are savvier about that now because everyone's famous you probably have a famous cousin who like went viral on TikTok and you could see how it went or just there. I don't know. It just feels like there's so much data now that it's harder to be ignorant about it. But I don't know. I'm a very optimistic person. <laughs> I mean, it really gets us into that territory of the article that so many people read in the fall of 2021, the bad art friend <laughs> that was in the New York times about, you know, two writers who end up in a court case, because one of them feels that the language, well, we can't, re we cannot rejudicate. We'll be here all day, man. <laughs> we, you know, be here for weeks. But one of the things that I thought about that when it all happened was that this is a consequence of the general public now understanding the concept of what people call IP. Mm. And now everybody thinks they have it. And they don't think that execution matters very much. And so everyone sort of has like, this is my life story. This is my intellectual property. And if it inspires someone else to write a story or make a film, and sometimes they're right. And I'm going to blank out on a name. Amanda, the young woman who was falsely convicted in Italy of murdering her roommate. Oh, Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. There was a movie made mm -hmm. about her life that didn't really kind of bother to check in with her ahead of time. And it breaks my heart because I know one of the filmmakers and he's a really smart, good guy who made one of my favorite movies. But I was like that in that case, definitely, I feel like someone was violated. And now we have to go case by case of is this a theft? Is someone's life being stolen or is this a story that's kind of so broad in general that it's it's become ever more complicated? See, I don't see that getting better. Mm. I, I think everybody thinks they're their own little walking Marvel universe. <laughs> they, they have uh -huh. just this huge potential. <laughs> well, I think part of that, the unspoken part of that is there aren't a lot of opportunities for people in the country. Right. Like if the minimum wage went up by way of like how productivity went, it would be like $35 an hour. It's now like... What if there were good jobs at the toaster plant? So, yeah. No, I mean, exa yeah. exactly. Like if the... Idea, people will complain. They'll be like, kids now, they just want to be YouTubers. It's like, fucking, of course they do. They want to make more than $40,000 a year. Also, being a YouTuber is hard fucking work. The vlogging, the editing, the energy levels. It really is. Part of the reason why everyone wants to get famous is like, it's a more realistic plan than winning the lottery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It exists because of a media landscape, but it also exists because there's a dearth of opportunity. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who's gone viral on Twitter who has A, enjoyed it, or B, made a dime off of it. Yeah. I just don't. No one makes any money off of it. I mean, I know the woman, Karen Ho, who basically popularized, oh, yeah. did not coin the phrase doom scrolling. Karen's so great. Yeah, Karen's wonderful. And I have another friend, um, a young poet, I'm not going to invoke her name because I don't think she ever wants this to come up again. She had the most innocuous tweet about her son go viral. 
And years later, people are still so, every now and then just charging into her mentions to scream at her that she made this up. <laughs> That's not true. That never happened. What I think was so interesting about like this character is like the delusion is in thinking I'm going to be famous and like Jane Polly. Yes. But the only game plan is I'm going to be famous and not following up with being like she knows all of the biographical details of these people, but she hasn't internalized what she would do for her game plan after fame. And I think that that is where a lot of people like I I did a TikTok video that went like millions of people viral where I called guns jewelry for insecure men. And I still on a regular basis every day am harassed by some right wing guy who like wants to come to my house and murder me. Like that's what happens when you don't have a game plan for people pay attention Mm -hmm. to you. And that's what I like about like how this character operates. This person isn't like, here's how I'm envisioning my career and part of my career will involve fame. And here's what I have to do. This is just like, I'll get attention and everything will be great. And this is a great premonition of what that looks like Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. I am always surprised by how unconflicted I am in my love of this movie because I feel like it almost feels like it could be this indictment of or this support of the idea that like the women today, they're they've been raised by media and they're dead inside and they just want to be famous at all costs. And that's why they commit murders. I knew it, which I think is what a lot of people thought. But I don't feel like that's the thesis of this movie. I think that Suzanne is meant to be indicative of like the whole society being sick. She's playing herself, but she's speaking the language that has been taught to her since birth. I mean, I think the thing that stands out for me, and this is why I was asking about the the potential relationship between Joyce Maynard and, and Suzanne's character is just like, what relates to me about this movie is like, I grew up not far from where this movie takes place. And all I wanted to do is find a way to get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. And for me, it would have been like writing or like some sort of performance or something along those lines. So like stripped of whatever this has to say about like what women want to do with mm-hmm. fame as a New Englander who just wanted to use any one of my skill sets to get out of there. I'm like, I relate to this person entirely. Mm-hmm. I don't relate to what they did, but like I relate to, to their desire. I was going to say, Joyce is someone in her life who has kept returning to New England almost sort of in spite of herself, it seems like. (laughs) I mean, I I mentioned she used the check that she got for to die for to buy a place in Marin County. She's ended up back there finally getting her degree at Yale. She dropped Mm -hmm. out of Yale to live with Salinger. She like returned to school. So she, and I think she still spends summers there. (laughs) So she has a complicated relationship with it. I mean, she very much identifies with it as sort of, you know, part of who she was. And I sense more of a push and pull for her. In my experience, in the relationship, a lot of my peers, the relationship with New England and Northern New England in particular, and then leaving New England is you're like haunted. You're haunted by the place and you have to come back Mm -hmm. like you can't not come back for a reason even though you don't want to even though you spent a lot of your time wanting to just be gone from it somehow it just friggin gets you so Joyce I feel you I I looked up where this was filmed and I it was not in New Hampshire now I've forgotten where it was and it might have been in Canada it was it was in Ontario yeah we talked about the production design it's just overall a beautiful film and I think a lot about those last shots that we see the day that Suzanne is murdered. Mm -hmm. And it sees all these vistas. We see none of the violence in her death. Mm. And there are also other scenes that are just so 
incongruously beautiful. And I think of the one in which um, they arrest the Casey Affleck character Mm -hmm. and the detectives wade into the water. There's just so much beauty in this movie. And I sometimes wonder if that's kind of intentional, which is, gosh, just look around you. Look at all of this that is so far beyond that square box that you long to be inside of Mm. being shown to other people. Yeah. Hmm. How would you describe this movie to people who are, uh, you know, on the fence or who you were just trying to explain why this is great? I would say that it's like the most artful distillation of what 90s media was, 90s TV media. It's perfectly cast. It has an amazing score by Danny Elfman. Like right off the bat, you're on a fantastic ride. I love the opening credit sequence to this, too. We haven't even talked about that. Wait, this has a Danny Elfman score, too? Of course it does. Why do you think it opens the people going, ah? Oh my God. That's the Elfman signature right there. <laughs> see, I was surprised to see him as the, the composer for Goodwill Hunting as well. Yeah, right. that's funny. Yeah, he was having his Gus Van Sandwich years. <laughs> oh, for Portlanders, it has a Tom and Gloria Peterson ad, Tom Peterson and Gloria's Two, which was a classic institution. They had these weird oh, wow. local ads that were like, Tom Peterson and Glorious too. Tom Peterson and his wife, they sold furniture. It was just like a thing. Tom Peterson and Glorious too is saying so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really smart movie and it's a really fun movie and it's those things in equal measures. And I think it's very rare to get equally fun and smart. There's usually some kind of a disparity there. This is like one of those like cottage cheese and jam things where you just have equal portions of each. It's perfect. Laura, what about you? Well, Sarah said almost everything that needs to be said. I would probably try to sell it to people by telling them that this is a reminder of how good a comedic actress Nicole Kidman is, which Mm -hmm. unfortunately I don't think is something we got in the Ryan Murphy adaptation of Prom. I don't really think that that did anything to burnish Nicole Kidman's reputation. It's just pretty in there. But this is, I think, one of her finest performances. I mean, I'm sorry, I'd give her the Oscar for this over the hours. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. This is so much, so much harder. And people are sort of like rediscovering the 90s again. Mm. And for people like me who are obsessed with the Showtime show Yellow Jackets, which is partly set, I think, in 95 or 96, Mm -hmm. Just to be reminded again of, yeah, you've got to remember that this was a really interesting time where media bubbled up really fast, Mm. but it was still primarily delivered via network television and major newspapers. Mm -hmm. Everyone had to kind of rush there and be there and do this kind of parachute journalism just mm-hmm. and all these people who are like you know trying to distill the nature of this small town the nature of this person chasing these stories all over the country it's, it really gets at that mm. but mainly it's, it's kidman for me oh yeah that reminds me of what how the new york times will do these stories that are like no one has ever heard of fargo north dakota but we discovered it this weekend and there's some cool stuff going on <laughs> yeah speaking of experiences you've had with people we really need to <laughs> unpack the intersection of Nicole Kidman and Titanic 
Billy's it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell us, please. Uh-huh. I was a swim counselor at Haran Camp of the Theater Arts in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. And Billy Zane was in the same, he actually attended the same private school in Chicago. He and Joe Weisberg were both in my swim class. Joe went on to be one of the showrunners for the Americans. Oh my God. Um, and Billy grew up to be Billy Zane, who had, I was like, he had a very watery career. <laughs> he did Titanic. He did Dead Calm. He did The Phantom. There was a lot of swimming. I tried to get Billy to give me an interview when Titanic came out, and there was just no way he was getting on the phone with me. He was not, did not wish to be known as my former swim pupil. Oh my what? God. I'm sure now he's clamoring for it. Take that, Billy. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> and then also Bob Colesbury, who was an executive producer on the early seasons of The Wire before he died rather um, early and tragically. And Bob Colesbury was Nicole Kidman's body double for the nude swim scene in Billy Bathgate. Why? Why was Bob the double? Well, it was a really long shot. <laughs> <laughs> And I just know this because after he died and we went up to um, the Hamptons for his funeral, there's a photo in Bob's house, in Bob's house at the time, of him in like the nude body stocking with this wig on, (laughs) swimming through a lake. And was he like, was he doing stunt swimming or was he just on set that day and they were like, you do it? Well, I mean, maybe he was, Bob came up through the ranks. He Maybe he was a grip at that time, or maybe by then he was first AD. But yeah, I think it was just like, we just need someone in a long shot to pretend to be swimming naked through this body of water. And I actually met Nicole Kidman at an event because of Bob, and I can't remember what I was or what we were doing. And she is very tall, not as tall as Sarah, but very tall. Drop dead gorgeous. And she's that rare person that you meet in Hollywood who's so tall, but she also has an enormous head. She still has an enormous head. (laughs) That's great. Is the thing about famous people that they're always smaller than you're expecting? Yes. They're always teeny tiny. (laughs) All right. We know there are at least a couple dads in this film played by Kurt Woodsmith and Dan Hedaya. What a great duo. Who is the daddy? David Cronenberg is my daddy. Mm. I, I am just so stuck on that performance. And then when he speaks Italian, it like goes up a notch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that him or is that ADR in? Who cares? It's probably, I don't know. But it, it because he's really funny and off kilter. He's the guy who swoops in to fix everything at the end. Sort of like, okay, you know, we're going to just, the justice system has failed us. <laughs> and so therefore, you know, David Cronenberg is going to come in and he's just funny and silly. That is such a small scene. But the way he takes her by the hand and he's like giggling and like, oh, come along. You know, I've got something wonderful to show you. And he's just very happily taking her off to be murdered. And I like to think in my version, the dog goes with him. He's like, I always wanted a little dog with an outfit on. And now I have one. Sarah, who's your daddy? Oh, my gosh. I think my daddy in this is I've always called her Ileana Douglas, but you called her Alina Douglas. And that sounds right. No, Ileana is right. Ileana Douglas is right. Well, anyway, Ms. Douglas, I think, is amazing in this. I love that she's such a strong character and that we bring in the interview with her immediately after meeting Suzanne. And these are kind of like the two 
contrasting approaches to womanhood and this movie has to offer in a way. I don't know. She's just like so fucking charming. And she was in Goodfellas. I think that like we're both beautiful in the same way, which is like giant eyes and a weird nose, like features that people are like, you could uh, do surgery on that. And you're like, nah, I'm cool. She's just wonderful. And this anyway, thinking about that reminded me of how when I was growing up, I would ask my dad if I was pretty. I would ask my mom, too. But this is about my dad's response to that. And he would go, you're striking. Wow. And I would go, am I pretty? And he'd go, you're striking. And like, just don't don't call your daughter striking. Just don't do it. Just say they're beautiful. If they are mistaken and think they're more beautiful than they are, then everyone else will think they are, too, because they'll be confident. It's fine. You want to have a confident child. Don't call your daughter striking. Thank you. <laughs> also, handsome, handsome is not good. Not for girls. <laughs> not for girls. I'm sorry. That's not what you're looking for. That's the one I got. Just call your kids beautiful and don't make a debate out of it because it it's not good for them as far as I can tell. Um, I'm going to go for Hadea. Not because of his role in this movie, really. Like, it's I don't think that this is assessing him in the movie necessarily. But, like, he does have his son's killer murdered. Which is like, I wouldn't advocate for it because it can get messy, but, you know, you can appreciate the impulse. It's one of the more relatable ways to kill someone. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. For a lot of reasons. One, he I think he was our our daddy in Clueless. Uh, We selected him for that because he's the shouty Jewish daddy who we all love. And as a as a man who has some body hair and has had a conflicted relationship with it my entire life. Really? In one way, or I mean, body hair wasn't like cool when I was a kid. People were like, all right. But it was like the 90s. Like people had like really weird, you know, they're like, put it away. In this movie, he is a bear, but then shorn from his neck up in a way where like he has like a Robin Williams sweater going on. And I, uh, I like that. I appreciate what he's doing for us people like him. I feel like you had in the mid-90s, you had him and then you had Christine Baranski in the birdcage, who was like (laughs) so into Robin Williams' chest hair. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much, Laura Littman. A reminder, Dream Girl, a novel, is available. It's one of the more than 20 books she has written. If you ask Laura, how many books have you written? She just knows it's more than 20. That's the best. Thanks so much to Carolyn Kendrick, who produces our episodes. We are grateful to you, Carolyn. You make the episodes sound so great. And uh, that's awesome. Carolyn has a couple of records out. One called Tear Things Apart, which is an EP. And the other is called The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1. So you can find music from past shows there. It's streaming and you can find it on Bandcamp. And you can find out more about Carolyn at carolynkendrick.com. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for the beats. It's the reason our transition sounds so great is because of Lesh, and we appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. We appreciate you. You are good. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at You Are Good Pod. You can find us on Patreon. We'll get those bonus episodes at patreon.com slash you are good. I think that's it for now. I think that's all you need to know. Next week, we talk about Goodfellas with Sarah Weinman. The next handful of episodes, I love this episode. I I love I love all the episodes, but the next handful, the next stretch episodes, I think you are going to be psyched about. They're all 
exactly right for the moment in time. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate you. You are good, everybody.